You're listening to the Jewish Living Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Mech. Hi there and welcome. I'm Rabbi Nachum Mech with the Las Vegas Kolel and welcome to the Jewish Living Podcast. The Talmud teaches us, Tanud Eliyahu was taught over in the Academy of Eliyahu. Kol halachos b'chol yom, anyone who studies halacha, Jewish law, every single day, muftach lo ben olam haba. He's assured a place in the world to come. Why is studying halacha, why is studying Jewish law so important that if one does it and practices studying every day, you're assured a place in the world to come? Why is it so central? Why is it so critical? So I want to tell you a story. Story takes place on July 23rd, 1983. There is a flight, Air Canada Flight 143, was flying between Montreal and Edmonton, and everything was going great. It's at 41,000 feet. When all of a sudden, the pilot hears a loud noise. And he looks at his panels, his instruments, and he sees one of his engines has stopped working. Says that it's out of fuel. Well, that's weird. That doesn't make any sense. Now, that's a bit of an emergency, but it's not critical because a plane can fly with only one engine working. So if one is down, but you have the other one operating, so they can still fly the plane. A couple of moments later, they get another bunch of warning signs going off, indicating that there's no fuel left in the second engine either. They're like, that's gotta be a mistake. There's no way that can be correct. What are the odds of both engines running out of fuel? It's virtually impossible. And then they heard a loud thud and the cockpit went completely dark. You see, the electricity in a cockpit, well, it runs off of a generator that runs through the engines of the planes. And apparently at 41,000 feet, Air Canada Flight 143, it ran out of gas. Now, that is an emergency. Luckily, the pilots were very well trained and... By some of a somewhat of a coincidence, one of the pilots had actually had a lot of experience flying gliders. And he it's a totally different skill than piloting a plane, but because he had that experience with gliders, he was able to glide the plane safely. And as they were slowly but surely getting the plane to a safe location, they were trying to figure out where could they possibly land this plane. They couldn't make it all the way to their destination, but their instrumentation, based on everything that they were able to, to detect, they realized that there was an abandoned Air Force base not too far away, the Gimli Air Force Base. So they decided they were going to glide this plane down to Gimli Air Force Base. Lo and behold, they were started landing the plane without any power, just gliding in on its own. And as the plane approached Gimli Air Force Base, which they thought was abandoned, they realized the other end of the the runway, there were still some people on the end of the runway because you see they had turned this Gimli Air Force Base, this old abandoned Air Force Base, they had turned it into a racetrack. And luckily a race had ended an hour or two ago, but there were still people lingering on the runway. And as the plane approached the runway, people saw this humongous, gigantic airplane. People luckily were able to get out of the way. The plane landed down quite hard onto the runway. The landing gear eventually gave way, which was actually a good thing because it built up a ton of friction. And thank God the plane was able to stop before it caused any catastrophes on the ground. And luckily there were no major injuries. It's called the Gimli Glider. It was a real miracle remarkable thing that this plane loses fuel at 41,000 feet and luckily the pilots are able to glide the plane to safety. After they got everyone off the plane and they took care of any of the medical issues, immediately they began the investigation. What went wrong? How in the world can a plane lose gas and run out of fuel at 41,000 feet? 
There's an amazing mitzvah in the Torah. The Torah teaches us the story, the halacha, the law of the king of Israel. Now, we don't have a king of Israel nowadays, but back in the good old days, in biblical times, the Torah tells us, you should have for yourselves a king. A king should be appointed over the Jewish people. And the Torah tells us all the requirements, the halacha, the laws of how a king should and should not behave. And the verse ends up telling us, Levilti sur min ha mitzvah yaminu small, that this king, he shouldn't deviate from the mitzvah, from the law, to the right nor to the left. Leman yarech yamim amamlachto, hu uvanav bekarav Israel, so that he will prolong his years over his kingdom, hu uvanav bekarav Israel, him and his children among the Jewish people. And Rashi tells us, when the verse tells us levilti sur min mitzvah that the king is instructed, the king is cautioned not to deviate from the mitzvah, Rashi alludes afilu mitzvah kaloshal navi, even a small mitzvah, a mitzvah that's not even a Torah requirement. It's just a rabbinic requirement. It's a mitzvah of a navi, of a prophet, not even one of the 613 mitzvahs. If a king wants his kingdom to be dynastic and to go from generation to generation, the Torah tells us, Vilti Sormin ha mitzvah yaminu small. He should not deviate from the mitzvah, not even small mitzvahs. He needs to be particular even about the smallest of mitzvahs. And Rashi tells the story. We know the king, the first king of Israel, was King Saul, was Shaul Hamelach. And we know he lost the kingdom. It wouldn't transfer over generationally, and we know the next king after him would be his rival, King David, David HaMelech. Why did Shaul lose the kingdom? Rashi tells us the story, how when Shaul, the king, when King Saul was about to wage war, Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet, tells Shaul to wait seven days, and on his return, Shmuel will return in seven days, and when he gets back, they'll offer karbanos, they'll offer sacrifices together, and once they do that, then they'll go and wage war against the Jewish people's enemies. And Shmuel instructs him, wait those seven days. Shaul waits 6.9 days. It's almost the end of the sixth day. His troops are antsy. They want to get started. They want to bring these sacrifices, do this service, so that they could get going and wage the battle that they want to wage. And Shmuel's not there. And Shaul, Saul's feeling the pressure. He wants to go to war. He wants to go and start this fight. And he has his troops pressuring him. They got to go. We got to go. We got to hurry. And Saul's looking at the clock. It's almost the seventh day. Shmuel's nowhere to be found. So Shaul decides he's going to offer those sacrifices, even though Shmuel is not to be found. And sure enough, immediately after offering those sacrifices, who shows up? Shmuel, the prophet Samuel. And Shmuel asks, he says, what's going on? And Shaul said, well, look, it's, it was almost the seventh day. It's 6.9 days. I didn't see you. The troops want to get going. So I brought the sacrifices by myself. Shmuel tells Shaul HaMelech, he tells King Saul, he says, because you didn't listen to the word of God, even though it was a minor detail, what's the difference between 6.9 and 7? He almost listened to everything that Shmuel said. He almost followed the rule. But that's not good enough, says Shmuel, because you didn't listen, you didn't, you didn't follow the law with all of its details. Because of that, Shmuel tells Saul, God has removed the monarchy from you. The monarchy will not be passed down to your children. Indeed, that's the reason why Shaul was the king, but none of his children were, and the next king of Israel would be David HaMelech, King David. 
And Rashi tells us this is a demonstration. This highlights this notion of the Vilti Sermon on Mitzvah Yaminu Small. The king should not deviate from the mitzvah to the right nor to the left, even a small mitzvah. A mitzvah kala shall navi, a small detail of a prophetic mitzvah, not even a Torah mitzvah, spells all the difference. Seems a little harsh. 6.9 days, 7 days. So Shaul messed up a little bit. Why, because of a small miscalculation, does Shaul lose the monarchy? It seems like an overreaction. And I think the best way to understand it is by giving an example. Let's say you were a teacher and you assigned your students the following question. You were teaching mathematical conversions and you were studying the formulas of how to convert liters, which is a measure of volume, into kilograms, a measure of weight. And you tell your students on today's exam, I want you to calculate how many kilograms is 7,682 liters. And let's say one of the students is really studious and he really wants to do a great job and he studied hard for the exam and he studied and remembered that the coefficient for converting liters into kilograms is 1.77. So he multiplies 7,682 by 1.77 and he gets the answer 13,597 and he shows all of his work. But you, the teacher, you recognize, oh, the student made a sloppy mistake because although that math works out, that's the wrong coefficient. That's the coefficient for pounds. The teacher had asked for kilograms. In kilograms, the correct coefficient is 0.803. So the correct answer is 6,169 kilograms. So what do you do if you're the teacher and you're grading this test? What would you give the student? So you might take off some points. You might give him no credit. You might give him partial credit because after all, he did remember the coefficient. He just remembered the wrong coefficient. He did the multiplication correctly. He just got one of the details wrong. So you deduct some points. Maybe you mark him completely wrong. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. It's one test. It's one question. It's one small thing. The stakes aren't that very big. It's not that big of a deal if the student messed up. But let's say it wasn't a student on a math exam. Let's say it was your job to measure how much fuel was in a fuel tank of Air Canada Flight 143. And you were told that there are 7,682 liters of fuel in the fuel tank. And you need to figure out, well, how many kilograms is that? And you use the wrong coefficient to figure out how many kilograms of fuel is in there. And you come out with the solution that there are 13,597 kilograms of fuel in that fuel tank, when in truth, there's only 6,169 kilograms of fuel in that fuel tank. Guess what happens then? Airplanes fall out of the sky. Because when the stakes are high, when you're dealing with airplanes traveling at 41,000 feet, details matter. Sloppy mistakes really matter. And it can cost lives. Yes, sometimes details aren't that big of a deal, but when we're talking about high stakes, when we're talking about things that matter, details are really, really important. And that's why I think the Talmud tells us, Kol hashona halachos olam haba. Anyone who studies halacha every single day is assured a place in the world to come because when we study halacha, when we study the details and intricacies of Jewish law, we're telling ourselves that details matter. My relationship with God matters. Halacha matters. I'm not going to be sloppy about how I live my life. I'm going to make sure that my Jewish living is up to par and I'm particular about details. 
Now, some might say, studying all these details and making sure I know all of the intricacies of halacha, of Jewish law, it could become overwhelming. There are so many details in halacha and the code of Jewish law and the Shulchan Arach. It goes on for pages and pages and volumes. It's overwhelming. So I would say back to that, that yes, there is a tremendous amount of information that makes up the corpus of halacha. If you want to study everything and to be an expert, it'll take you several lifetimes. But that said, if a person just wants to get a healthy baseline understanding of Jewish law, a healthy baseline of knowledge so that you can live your life Jewishly and in accordance to Jewish law, my experience is that it's actually not overwhelming. It just takes a sincere commitment to education. A person just makes sure that I've got a sincere commitment to studying the halacha, it's actually not overwhelming. It's not that much information. To get a baseline understanding of Jewish living, it will take some time and dedication, but it's not overwhelming. It just takes dedication and commitment. That is all that is needed to be able to live a healthy baseline life of Jewish living and observance. It is very, very manageable. And that is the goal of this podcast. The goal of this podcast is to give everyone a healthy baseline level of knowledge and education so that you can live a Jewish life in accordance with halacha. And by studying Jewish law, by studying halacha, by making sure I'm doing my part to ensure that I have that baseline of knowledge, we will all, please God, be blessed to be muftah loshu ben olam haba, to be assured a place in the world to come. A quick note about the format of this podcast. This podcast is taken from recordings of a weekly class that I give at the Las Vegas Kolel. So every now and again, you might hear some interaction or questions with people in the audience. I will do my best to repeat those questions so that the flow of the podcast makes for easy listening. As always, please feel free to reach out with any questions that you might have. Leave us a comment and please like and share this podcast with others. You've been listening to the Jewish Living Podcast with Rabbi Nahal Math. Please do us a favor and like and share this podcast, ask a question, or leave a comment.